The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Tomorrow's Christmas. Merry Christmas, Bereans. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Christmas is a very controversial subject in churchianity. Are you aware of that? A couple of weeks ago, I got a text from someone asking if I taught the truth about Christmas and Easter. How do you respond to that? That's exactly. Well, how do you respond? Do you teach? No, I teach lies, you know. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> what? Yes, I, I think I teach the truth. I think I teach what I think is the truth, but it's probably not what you think is the truth. I don't know. You know, there's so many different views on that. So that was, <laughs> that was interesting. <clears throat> but there are just a ton of people with different views. <laughs> to some folks, it's a pagan holiday that should be avoided at all costs. The Puritans in America called Christmas Romish rags and deliberately worked on the 1st December 25th to show disdain for the pagan holiday. In 1644, the English Puritans passed a law making Christmas Day a working day, and it became illegal to cook plum pudding and mince pie. Illegal! Let me say this. The Puritans, for the most part, were Pharisees. Okay? Great doctrine, but... Man, they just were Pharisees. They really were in the implementation. Impl- yeah, whatever. Can't even say. <laughs> so, does the Bible anywhere teach or indicate that it would be a sin to make plum pudding or mince pie? No, but this is just legalism. You know, people have these views and they want to put them on other people because they think something's right. Don't be like the Pharisees judging other Christians for how they're celebrating Christian, a Christmas. Romans 14. Five, Paul said this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You just be convinced in your own mind about what you're doing, and don't worry about what everybody else, because God hasn't called you to sit in judgment on other Christians who are doing things differently than you. Well, when you think about Christmas, what comes to your mind? I think most, if not all of us, have celebrated Christmas in the traditional way, you know, all our life. From my earliest memories, Christmas was presents, presents, and more presents. That's, I mean, our living room was just so, you could not move in our living room. There were so many presents. My mom, it was just crazy on Christmas. And we would spend hours unwrapping stuff and then try to play with them. And then they'd say, okay, we're going visiting. I'm like, no! I got all these toys and now you drag it. This is just cruel. Well, that was Christmas. All right, I couldn't wait to get back home to play with the new stuff I got. Well, thoughts of Christmas, I think, bring different things to different people's minds. There's a lot of things we associate with Christmas, like lights, trees, presents, food, Santa Claus, family gatherings, even the birth of Christ. I believe that Christmas is a pagan holiday. Okay, don't don't shut me off yet. Let me finish. Okay, and by that I I don't mean it's bad. Okay. I just mean it's not a biblical holiday. I'll explain this shortly, all right? So let me ask you, is it wrong to bring a tree into your house 
and decorate it? Heck no. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, saw this, I found this meme yesterday. The Christmas deception exposed. And then he's got, you know, see the star on the top of the tree? Well, that's the star of the, you know, that's satanic. And then the, the little Christmas ornaments, that's, that, that's Baal, okay? The thing I like the most is, look at the serpent, that garland that's wrapped around the tree, that's the serpent. I'm like, what kind of morons think this stuff up, you know? I mean, you can make something evil out of anything. It's, this is just ridiculous. And some Christian is going to say, yeah, but Jeremiah says it's wrong. What? Let's look at Jeremiah. I don't know if Jeremiah knew about Christmas, okay? <laughs> I don't know that he'd ever heard of Christmas, all right? But he says, hear the word that Yahweh speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, work with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so it cannot move. Christians use this passage to teach that it's wrong to have a Christmas tree. Is, you think Jeremiah's talking about a Christmas tree here? What's he talking about? This whole passage is about idolatry. All right. So listen, if you are worshiping your Christmas tree, that's wrong, okay? If you are in the sitting there, you got lighting candles around, bowing down or doing whatever, oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas you know, that is wrong. Yes, that's wrong, okay? But I don't know of anybody that does that. You know, they just put up a tree because they think it's pretty. So let me ask you this. <clears throat> so it's not really wrong to take a tree and bring it in your house. Okay, so we can't condemn one another for that. Is it wrong to put lights up on your house? I don't. Bible doesn't say thou shalt not put string lights outside your house. <clears throat> Is it wrong to give people gifts? Is it wrong to send greeting cards? Is it wrong to have your family and friends over for a Christmas meal? <laughs> Depends on your family, right? All right, let me ask you this one, people. Is it wrong to lie to your children and tell them that Santa Claus brings presents? Yes. Oh, thank you. Okay. Yeah, that would be. I mean, it amazes me how Christians... Remember when our kids were real little, we were at the Christian bookstore, and the lady goes, Oh, what's Santa going to bring you? And my five-year-old daughter says, Santa's not real. <laughs> the lady got this look on her face like, What in the world? I'm like, We don't lie to our children. I mean, it's just kind of foolish. You know, you tell them this and later, Oh, I lied about that. Well, what about Yeshua? Did you lie about him too, or is that real? You know, don't confuse him. Okay, don't confuse him. Colossians three nine says, "Do not lie to one another, seeing you put off the old self with his practices." Lying is wrong, but doing these other things is not wrong. Okay, but there's some in churchianity who want to condemn you for doing them. I've seen memes all over this past couple of weeks about condemning Christians because this is a pagan holiday and this is worshiping Satan and all this nonsense, and I'm like. No, it's really not. But then you have people on the other side who work really hard to keep Christmas or make Christmas a Christian holiday. All right? So how much of Christmas has to do with Christ? Yeah, it always made me laugh. You know, we're celebrating the birth of Christ. We're celebrating Him by giving other people presents. I'd be like, I'd be mad if it was my birthday. It's my birthday and everybody else gets presents, you know? We celebrate the birth of Christ by overeating, by overdrinking, by you know all this nonsense. But yeah, going in debt. But we're celebrating Christ. None of Christmas has anything to do with Christ. None of it's biblical. None of it's commanded by the Lord. None of it's apostolic. 
None of it was ever observed by the early church. Yet to many Christians, Christmas is a Christian holiday. And like I said, Christians work hard to keep Christ in Christmas. You heard the little slogan, uh, he's the reason for the season. (laughs) He's the purpose of it all. He's the purpose of what all? He's the purpose of the lights, the gifts, the Santa. None of that has anything to do with Christ. So Christ and Christmas have nothing to do with each other from a biblical point of view. The only way that Christ is connected to Christmas is through tradition. So there's nothing Christian about it. And, and again, I'm not attacking Christmas. I think, I think doing all the things we do, buying gifts as long as you can afford them, putting up trees, doing that stuff, that's fine. It's just a holiday. Okay? You don't have to condemn it, it, but it has nothing to do with Christ. And I think when you confuse Christ with Christmas, it just gets muddled up in all the tradition. And, and I, think, I think that's crazy. Just enjoy Christmas and don't try to make it something that it's not. And there's a lot of myths about Christmas. And one of them is in the name. What, is, what does Christmas mean? Well, it means Mass of Christ, or as it came to be shortened, Christ Mass. It's a Roman Catholic Mass which grew out of a specific feast day established in 1038. And it has nothing to do with the Scripture, has nothing to do with Christ. The Encyclopedia Britannica, in 1946 edition, they used to understand things, okay, <laughs> says this, Christmas was not among the earliest festivals of the church. Yes, see, you won't find anything about Christmas in my book on the feasts, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I never said that before in my life. (laughs) So so the name isn't Christian, okay? How about the date? There's the myth tied about the date. You know, this is December 25th, and this is, you know... Is this date important? Is tomorrow an important date? Was Yeshua born on December 25th? You don't think so? Everybody does. Why? How come we're different? (laughs) How come we are different? <laughs> the apostles and the early church never celebrated Christ's birthday at any time. Matter of fact, there is no command or instruction to celebrate any birthday in the Bible. Okay? Celebrating birthdays is a pagan custom. It's, it's not something you find in Scripture. It's not a Christian custom. The Scriptures tell us where to celebrate His death and the observance of the Lord's Supper, but they never tell us to celebrate His birth. So the date of December 25th has nothing to do with Christ. Okay, there's so many reasons He could not have been born on December 25th. According to Scripture, He was born on September 11th. All right, look at Revelation 12, 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. The sign here John uses was, this word he uses for sign, was a term used in the ancient world to describe the constellations of the zodiac. And John's model for this vision of the church is the constellation Virgo. And Virgo does have a crown of 12 stars that they're visible ones that can be seen by observers. And John said that the moon was located under her feet. Now, since the feet of Virgo, the Virgin, represent the last seven degrees of the constellation, 
In the time of Christ, this would have been about 180 to 187 degrees on the ecliptic. Now, the moon has been positioned somewhere under that 7-degree arch, but the moon also has to be in the exact location when the sun is mid-bodied to Virgo. Well, in the year 3 B.C., these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours, as observed from Palestine on September 11th. This is the only day in the whole year that this could have taken place. Now, if you want more details on this, I did a message a while back called The Incarnation and the Zodiac, and we go into great detail on how this all works out and, you know, the, the charts and stuff. So if you want more information, just... But I think this scripture is very clear that this, these things that he's talking about here only happened, as I said, within a two-hour window. So Now, from Revelation 12, 1 and 2, I think we see that Christ was born on September 11, 3 B.C. Well, in the year 3 B.C., the first of Tishri was on September 11th. Tishri 1 is the very first day of the Jewish month. The date was also called Yom Turah, or the Day of Trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. So the Feast of Trumpets was to take place on the first day of the seventh month. Now the close proximity of those positions of the sun and the moon as described in Revelation indicate a new moon time frame, which is exactly the situation which exists on the first day of the Jewish month. Tishri 1, the Feast of Trumpets. So both, listen, both the birth of Christ, His first coming, and His second coming were on the Feast of Trumpets. Now some people try to put it on a different feast, they try to put it on uh, the Feast of Booths, which is the last feast. But the Feast of Booths, I don't think Christ could have been born then because the Feast of Booths was a pilgrim feast. All right, what did the pilgrim feast mean? There's three of them. It meant everybody had to go to Jerusalem. Well, do you think the Romans would put a census in at the time that the, all the Jews had to go to Jerusalem? That'd been kind of dumb because the Jews are going to, that's going to make a big conflict there. So I just, I don't think that fits at all. But I think this feast. Feast of Trumpets fits just fine. So Christmas, in my opinion, is a secular holiday. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate it. I enjoy the holiday. I enjoy most of what goes along with it. But enjoy it for what it is. It's just a, a holiday with no spiritual significance. It's just like the 4th of July. It's just like Valentine's Day. Don't try to you know, cram Christ into something he doesn't belong in and make his, all this stuff about him. It's not about him. All right? It's a day that somebody's picked out. You know, we go into all the details. It doesn't really matter how it ever came about, but it's definitely not biblical. So we're told by Christians to keep Christ in Christmas. Well, I don't think we need to do that, okay? I don't think he belongs there. You can call Christmas Christ's birthday, but isn't the purpose of a birthday to honor the people, person whose birthday it is? And so I just said, what about the celebration Christmas honors Christ? What do we do? You know, and it's a rough time for a lot of people. It's a great time of depression for many people. Suicide rate goes up during the holidays. So, you know, it's, for some people it's great, and other people it's not at all. All right? So, <clears throat> there's a lot of myths surrounding it. I'm, I'm going to talk this morning about the myth of the place of Christ's birth. All right? Where was he born? Was he really born in a stable? Kathy and I watched a Christmas movie last week. I, matter of fact, I've watched... Four or five. I'm just being a submissive great husband watching Christmas movies. They're all exactly the same, just different players, and it ends all the same. But, you know, this one was a little bit different because this movie, an angel came to some guy who lost his job. This guy loses his job right around Christmas, so 
you know, that's a devastating thing. So he's just all bitter and ungrateful. So the angel comes to him. This is a modern day situation. And then she transports him back to Bethlehem in the first century. And so he's watching Joseph and Mary and, and <laughs> this great struggle they have trying to, you know, they walk into the inn and they're arguing with the innkeeper. Yeah, no rooms at all. No, 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 you should have made a reservation, you know. And they finally send him out to the state. They charge him to go out into the stable. And he's out there and it's just, you know, they're making such a big deal like it's so horrible. And the whole point was the angel was trying to teach him, some people have it worse off than you. I'm like, wow, they just turned this story upside down, turned it on its head. Because they had to give birth in a stable, life can really be bad. And so you should be more grateful for your life. And I just thought, well, first of all, <laughs> first of all, the writer doesn't know much about Scripture, neither does this angel, because this, this thing was all confused, all right? But, but they were making the big deal. It's the stable. That's a bad thing. And I guess that's maybe how we think of it. You know, Christ is a miserable birth where he's born in this stable. Well, you know, I often talk about the importance of understanding the Hebrew culture in order to properly understand Scripture. If you study the culture in light of the birth of Christ, we see quite a different picture than that the tradition paints. We study the Bible, the biblical text, and the archaeological evidence in the first century cultural context, the details surrounding Yeshua's birth appear to be quite different than traditionally thought. <clears throat> Most modern versions of the story of Yeshua's birth go something like this. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem late on December 24th, right? Mary's in labor. She's about to give birth. They go into the local inn. They say, oh, sorry, we're full. There's no, just no rooms left, okay? So they just... What do they have? They have no other option. And so they're just wearied from their journey. They're desperate. So they send him out to a stable and Christ is born in the stable. And the shepherds and the kings come by and they worship him. Is that what scripture teaches? No. It's not at all. But that's what just about everybody believes in every movie. Everything about it is all focused on, you know, this stable and these animals. And <clears throat> let's just look at the text and see what the text would tell us if we actually examine it. Luke 2.1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is a regional census, and it leads Joseph and Mary into the city of David, better known as Bethlehem. He says all the world. Now, this means all the territory that's ruled by Rome. He doesn't, he's not having people coming from, not, not even under the Roman Empire, come in and pay taxes or line up for the decree. The, the decree here comes from Caesar Augustus. Caesar is just a title for a Roman emperor like president is for us. But Caesar was called Augustus. His actual name was Gaius Octavius. And he ruled alone from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. It says this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now the administrator of the census was Quirinius. The census probably sought to provide a registration list for taxes. So a journey to the ancestral home would have fit the Jewish practice, so the custom would be done culturally. It would, they're trying to not be too offensive to the Jews, and you have to realize the Jews, this is just a reminder that they're in bondage to Rome. Verse 3 and 4 says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, let's look at verse 4 in the complete Jewish Bible. Get the Hebraic flavor of this. So, Yosef, because he was a descendant of David, went up from the town of Nazareth to Galal, 
to the town of David called Bet Lechem in Yudah. Now, Yeshua's parents weren't Joseph and Mary, they were Yosef and Miriam. And the meaning of Yosef is Yahweh shall add or enlarge, and Miriam means bitter or strong waters or waters of strength. So Nazareth to Bethlehem is about a 90-mile trip, assuming that the Samaria was bypassed, because they wouldn't want to go through Samaria. 90 miles, that's quite a journey for someone who's about to have a baby. And they didn't drive their car, okay? They probably didn't, even, there's nothing mentioned about a donkey in the story, so it meant they probably had to walk. That's, that's like a three-day journey. That's a lot of walking for a pregnant woman. Now, at the time, Bethlehem was a little town. It had about 300 to 1,000 inhabitants, they say. The word Bethlehem, or Bet-Lechem here, comes from two words, Bet. Bet means house. And Lechem means bread. So, Yeshua was born in a house of bread. What do we call a house of bread? A bakery, okay? This is interesting in light of the fact that Yeshua said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread of life was born in a bakery. Yeshua, the bread of life, offers spiritual food that will completely satisfy our hunger. Now, this may sound a little silly to you, but this is Hebraic. They see things pictorially. All right? So that's, that's, that's the whole idea of Bethlehem in the house, and the Lord's born there. Bethlehem is the town of David. Uh, indicates that Yeshua's birth connection to the promise made in the Tanakh. In the Tanakh, in Micah 5, 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now, notice he says it's not just Bethlehem, but Bethlehem Ephratah. Why Ephratah? Because there was two Bethlehems. One Bethlehem was in Galilee, the other was in Judea. Just so there's no confusion here, the prophecy deals with the birth of the one who is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, a tiny little town south of Jerusalem. It's no big deal, really, the town, other than the fact that King David was born there. That, that would make it a big deal to a descendant of David. So Yeshua, the son of David, is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, just as Micah prophesied. Luke 2, 6 and 7 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, we've all grown up hearing the account of the inn in Bethlehem was full. No vacancy sign was on. Joseph and Mary ended up in a stable because of that. Yeshua ended up laying in a manger there. And I think this image has been used to promote the typical Christmas nativity scene for generations. And any, any play you see, any program, any movie, this is, this is how they portray it. But yet, if you really do a careful analysis of the text, you're going to get a very different story. First of all, the Greek word translated in here is kataluma. And kataluma means a place of rest. It's usually translated guest room. Now, is there a difference in your mind between an inn and a guest room? I hope so. But here's what's interesting. The same writer, Luke, uses this very same word, kataluma, later where it clearly refers to a guest room and not an inn. He says in Luke 22:11. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room, Kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. Now, the same author, same book, same Greek word, two different translations. What's that about? 
Who did that? And the ESV even messes this up. You know, I don't, I don't understand that. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Mark. Mark 14, 14. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my kataluma, guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So, in Mark, it's also translated as guest room. So why translate it as in, in the story of Christ? They don't want to mess up the story. Okay, this is what everybody believes. Well, let's, let's put it in here, because that's what everyone thinks it is. We don't want to confuse people with the truth. Okay, so let's just translate it in. What's interesting is that when Luke does speak of an in, he uses a completely different word. The parable of the Good Samaritan says this in, in Luke 10, 34. He went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So Yeshua mentions that the injured man in the story was taken to an inn. And here the, Luke uses the Greek word pandoheon. Now the first part of the word pan means all. The second part is a verb to mean receive. So the pandoheon is a place that receives all, namely an inn, okay? This common Greek term for an inn was so widely known across the Middle East that over the centuries it was absorbed as a Greek loan word into Aramean, Coptic, Arabic, Turkish. They all had the same meaning. It's a commercial inn. Now, if Luke expected his readers to think that Joseph was turned away from an inn, he should have used pandoheon, which clearly meant a commercial inn, but in Luke 2.7 he uses kataloma. And there's no room. Young's literal translation, and let me tell you people, you, I keep saying this, but you have a Bible you're studying, put Young's by it and just you know, check, compare it to Young's, because Young's well, gives you a very literal translation. Young says this, And she brought forth her son, the firstborn, and wrapped him up, and laid him down in a manger, because there was not for them a place in the guest chamber. Oh, huh. Literally, he says guest chamber, because that's what... That's the meaning of the word, all right? Now, no room in the inn, which it doesn't say that here. It says no place. The New American says no room in the inn. has taken on the meaning of the inn had a whole bunch of number of rooms, but they were all occupied. No vacancy signs already switched on So Joseph and, when Joseph and Mary got there, so they had to go somewhere else. But the Greek word that is used here for no place or room in the New American um, does not refer to a room in an inn. It doesn't refer to a room at all. It rather refers to space. The Greek word here is tapos, as in, I don't have any space on my bookshelf for another book. Okay, so it's not talking about a physical room, it's talking about just there's no space. So what Luke is telling us is there's not enough space for them in the guest room. Why? There must have been somebody there, or the room was too small for what they had to do. Now the linguistic evidence shows that Luke used the term kataluma to mean not an inn, but the guest room, the, the definite articles used here, it's the guest room of a particular house. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, after pointing out the word kataluma, is used elsewhere in the Gospels for the guest chamber of a private home, makes this comment. Was the inn at Bethlehem where Joseph and Mary sought a night's lodging, an upper guest room in a private home, or some kind of public place for travelers? The question cannot be answered with certainty. Eh, I think it can. It is thought by some that it may have been a guest chamber provided by the community. We know that visitors to the annual feast in Jerusalem 
or entertained in the guest rooms of private homes. <clears throat> I, I would beg to differ with them on the, that it can't be known with certainty because I think the question can be answered with certainty <clears throat> if you just look at the languages. Another factor I think that powerfully argues against this term meaning an inn is that these places were not appropriate for giving birth to a child. Inns at that time were far from anything like we think of a motel or an inn today. They had a very bad reputation. Most of them were brothels. They were just filthy places, poor conditions and public inns. You know, and you take, first of all, the, the mess that inns were, like I said, brothels, very filthy places. And then you add in the spirit of hospitality that the Jews had. You're like, how could this happen? All right. I mean, you've seen, you know, the Jews here, take my daughter because he wants to be hospitable. You know, I'm like, you just shows you how how in depth that was for them. And besides this, for commercial reasons, inns were usually found along major roads. That makes sense, right? Where are they found now? Go near the interstate. You got, you got inns all over the place, all right? Hotels. Yet Bethlehem was a small town in the upper mountains of Judea, and there's no major Roman road known to have passed through it. Now, since it seems to have been an insignificant village at the time, it's doubtful that an inn even existed there, all right? And this gives us reason to realize that what Luke really wrote is that there was no space for them, there wasn't enough room for them in the guest chamber. Certainly due to the Roman census being taken at that time and the huge number of people that would be traveling to their birthplaces, birth available space in that guest room would be scarce. So the question then becomes, does that mean that Joseph and Mary aimed to stay in somebody's guest home, but since the room was already filled, they turned him away and had to go to a stable? <laughs> That's even worse than the traditional story of an inn turning them away, right? I mean, that's no hospitality at all. In Christ's day, hospitality to visitors among the Jews was essential. Based on the biblical example and law, hospitality was a huge deal. We've talked about this before. A huge deal in that culture. The Jews had a list of six things to commend a man in the life to come. And number one in that list was hospitality. Now, you know, we don't usually think of hospitality as one of the top ten commandments, but the Jews saw it as number one. Where'd they get that idea from? Well, they got it from the Scripture in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. This is how the Scriptures say, this is how we treat strangers. You love them as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So Israel's told to love strangers as they love themselves. The word strangers here doesn't mean they're strange. It's used of aliens. It's used of people you don't know. If they're to love strangers, they certainly were to love each other. And denial of hospitality was shown throughout the Scripture to be an outrage. Hospitality toward visitors is still important throughout the Middle East today. Now, since Bethlehem was Joseph's ancestral home. He probably had relatives there. As being a descendant of King David, whose home this was, he would have been highly respected upon his arrival into this town. Now think of maybe a descendant of George Washington coming home to Alexandria, Virginia, after a long time, and the townspeople not you know, being excited about that. Well, maybe they're not, because we're Westerners. But Kenneth Bailey, who is a Middle Eastern and New Testament scholar, explains this. He says, My 30-year experience with villagers in the Middle East 
is that the intensity of honor shown to passing guests is still very much in force, especially when it's a returning son of the village who is seeking shelter. We have observed cases where a complete village has turned out to greet to our great celebration to greet a young man who has suddenly arrived unannounced in the village which his grandfather had left many years before. So he's saying this is happening today over there, Bailey's saying. It should also be pointed out that childbirth is a major event at that time. In a small village like Bethlehem, many neighboring women would have come together to help with the birth. Bailey writes this, In the case of a birth, the men will sit apart with neighbors, but the room will be full of women assisting the midwife. A private home would have had bedding, facilities for heating water, and all that is required for any peasant birth. So what all this means is that it would have been unthinkable and unimaginable insult and affront to societal decency for Joseph, a returning son of the village and his laboring wife, to need to seek shelter in an inn, to have a baby of Davidic descent. And then even worse, to be sent out to have the birth in his stable. Nor is it thinkable even that they'd be sent out from a private home, all right? <clears throat> the birth of Christ is overlaid with so much tradition and legend about Christmas, it's hard for us to even let the Bible speak for itself and tell us what's really going on here. Now, the common assumption is that Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, being anxious because of the labor pains, they rush to the inn, they find no vacancies, and they end up in a stable. But a careful reading of the text shows they'd already been in Bethlehem. They didn't get there that night. All right? It's not like they walk into town and run right to the inn. We need a place to stay. They'd been there for a while. In Luke 2, 4, we're told that Mary and Joseph went up to Bethlehem, and the verse assumes their arrival. And then in verse 6, we're told this. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So the text affirms a time lapse between the arrival and the birth. So they're in town now, all of a sudden, oh, it's time for the birth. They must have already been lodging somewhere in Bethlehem when the birth pains occurred, and this is surely not a stable or some you know, residential inn or whatever. You know, Joseph, I'm sure, would have taken care of and thought about the fact that his wife and he had been there and had made arrangements to do that. Another thing that we see is that uh, Mary's cousin Elizabeth lived very close to there because Mary had stayed there during her pregnancy. So they could have, if they needed a place and they're desperate, they didn't have to stay in a stable, they could just go to Elizabeth's house. She would have gladly taken care of them. So they, they get to Bethlehem and they found a house, probably one of Joseph's relatives, and being in these accommodations already, it makes no sense for them, and you know, she starts to give birth to go look for something else, another place to stay. Yet we might be asking, so why were they sent out to a stable? Well, I guess we'd have to ask, why do we think Yeshua was born in a stable? Where would we get that from? The, the text doesn't say that. He's born in a stable, right? Look at the text. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So she laid him in a manger. And everyone knows mangers are in stables, right? Wrong. Again. The Archaeological Study Bible says this. Kath, will you get me some coffee, please? My cup is back there somewhere. The study Bible says the manger, the manger, the manger was the feeding trough of the animals. 
This is the only indication that Jesus was born in a stable. All right, the manger, that's it. Very early traditions suggest that this birthplace was a cave, perhaps being used as a stable. Now, Justin Martyr in the 2nd century stated that Yeshua's birthplace was a cave close to the village. Over, over this tradition, the manger site, uh, Constantine and his wife, they built this Church of the Nativity. Now it's a you know, tourist trap there, but they're saying that was, that was the birth of Christ. Okay. Note that it's only the manger, an animal food or water trough, that gives any indication that this was a stable. But it's really important to realize that stables were also found in homes Okay, in this time period. This is your typical home, a typical Judean home. It consisted of an area near the door. You see where the animal's walking in the door there. And there's a dirt floor there. And the manger's in there, and that's where the animals were. Then you see a raised platform. That's where the family lived, on that raised platform. Now, sometimes there would be a guest room either on the roof. They would build a second story, have a guest room, or it's attached to the side of it. But this was, this was typical. This is, this is how the homes are. The family lived and slept in the raised part of the home towards the back of the back of the home. So, you know, that this is very, if you understood the culture, you understand, okay, that they have the animals in the house. Why? Well, it protects the animals from, you know, being stolen, protects them from something, you know, killing them. It also adds warmth to the home. You got you know, body heat now in the house, but they're separate. They don't come up on the platform where the family lives, okay? It's a little bit different. So Eric F.F. Bishop, who's an expert in Middle Eastern culture, noted that the birth of Christ probably took place, he says, one of the Bethlehem houses with the lower section provided the animals, with the mangers hollowed in stone, the dais, or raised area, being reserved for the family, such a manger being immovable, filled with crushed straw. Now, he goes on, would do duty for a cradle. An infant might even be left in safety, especially if swaddled when the mother was absent on temporary business. Kaylin, would you leave the baby in a manger and go out for a while? <laughs> Cows come over and chewing on them or what? I don't know. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think too many moms would do that. Another Middle Eastern uh, author, Gustav Dahlman, says this. He says, in the East today... The dwelling place of man and beast is often in one the same room. It is quite the unusual thing among the peasants, or it's quite the usual thing among the peasants for a family to live, eat, and sleep on the kind of raised terrace in the one room of the house with the cattle, particularly donkeys and oxen, have their place below the actual floor near the door. This part sometimes is continued along under the terrace, a kind of low vault. On this floor, the mangers are fixed either to the floor or to the wall or the edge of the terrace. So this scene of an ox or donkey in the house at night might go against our Western sensibilities. You know, my wife would not have an animal like this in the house, okay? Yet as Bailey comments, he says, It is we in the West who have decided that life with these great gentle beasts is culturally unacceptable. The raised terrace on which the family ate, slept, and lived was unsoiled by the animals which were taken out each day and during which time the lower level was cleaned. Their presence was in no way offensive. Well, it would be offensive today to many people because it would smell, but, but to them, this is life, okay? 
And then the animals could have been taken out when the actual birth was taking place. But, you know, understanding this, a little bit about culture, it helps you get some insight into some texts that we read. And we read through these texts and we don't even think about it. For example, this is a witch at Endor. And Saul goes to her and says, Now the woman had a fat calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and took flour, and kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread. Anything strike you as strange in that text? <laughs> she had a fatted calf in the house. We're like, what's wrong with this lady? Why is this calf? In- That's- okay, now you get it. You got the typical house. And he's on there in the dirt floor, there in the raised platform. Another story in the Tanakh that this cultural understanding shed some insight in is in Judges 11.30 and 31. And Japheth made a vow to Yahweh and said, If you will give the Amorites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. (laughs) He's counting on the fact that one of the animals would be what he'd see coming out of the house in the morning and not his daughter, okay? So he kind of messed up here. It was more often the wealthy who actually even had stables for their animals that were separate from the house. So a more realistic view of what occurred with Christ's birth, according to custom of the time, is that the manger was in a house and wasn't in a stable. It should be stated that this could conceivably have involved a cave. Some, some think he was born in a cave, but that's, that's only because some houses were actually built over caves, but this is not the norm. And the cave imagery, I think, came about because people believed that Christ's birth had to be in seclusion. No one had to know about it. I, I just don't think it's a good, uh, a good understanding there. <clears throat> now, some might object that Mary and Joseph being accommodated in the family common room of the house instead of the guest room was inhospitable. Well, Bailey points out, no unkindness or lack of hospitality is implied when the Holy Family is taken into the main family room of the home in which they are entertained. The guest room is full. The host is not expected to ask the prior guests to leave. Such would be quite unthinkable and in any case unnecessary. The large family room is more appropriate in any case. Now, you're considering the fact of the custom that there'd be a lot of women there helping, going in, going out during the birth. Having Mary stay in the main room would make a lot more sense. It would, she'd have more room to do what they needed to do. It's possible that the Luke's mention of there being no room or no space meant that the particular guest room was too small for a birth. They can't fit a lot of people in there, so we're going to bring her into the main room. This cultural information gives, I think, a new understanding of the story of Yeshua's birth. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. They find shelter in a family's house whose separate guest room is either full or too small. And so they're accommodated with the family you know, onto the main floor of the house there. The birth takes place on this raised terrace, and the baby's laid in the manger that's right there. Great place to do it, all right? The Palestinian reader of Luke's account would have instinctively thought, manger, uh, they're in the main family room. We don't think that at all. But again, the cultural difference is huge, all right? And and the the first century person might have thought, well, that's weird. Why why not the guest room? And so Luke says, because there was no room in the guest room. (laughs) There was no place. So he's answering their question before they even ask it. And they say, oh, okay, that makes sense because there's a lot more room in the main house anyway. So listen, throw out your nativity scenes, okay? (laughs) They're all wrong. (laughs) Get rid of that idea, all right? Let's put them in a house. You can put some little animals in the house, all right? But just make it, let's, let's, let's make it more biblical. 
Another element to the story, I think, that reinforces the picture here is that of the shepherds who received the announcement of the birth of the Savior from the angels. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. You've got to understand, a shepherd would not be in a field unless the field had already been harvested. You bring the sheep into somebody's field, and you're going to have a war going on. Okay, hey, I'm trying to, you know, because the plots of land they had were about the size of this room. They're trying to take care of their family. But once that was harvested, then the shepherds would bring, and they'd just take it down to the dirt. All right? So that tells us something about the time. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, <clears throat> shepherds were very near the bottom of the social ladder. You remember when Joseph went down to Egypt, they were like, oh, don't, let them, don't tell them you're shepherds because they don't, they don't take too highly to shepherds. Well, that was the same with the rabbis taught that the shepherds were unclean. Now think about that. Shepherds are unclean. Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. I think this just shows you how far first century Judaism had departed from the truth of the Bible. As men of the lower ranks of society, they may not have felt that they would have been received too well visiting a king, right? But the angel told them as a sign that they would find this child lying in a manger. So they would find this child in an ordinary peasant home just like theirs. He's not in a governor's mansion. He's not in some wealthy merchant's guest room. He's in a simple two-room home. He was one of them. Bottom line, in all of this, people, is what really matters about the birth of Christ is that we understand why He was born. The birth of Yeshua is the miraculous event of great significance to mankind. Matthew 1.21 says, She will bear a son. You shall call His name Yeshua. We will save His people from their sin. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. What does Jesus mean? What does Jesus mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a name that they made up, okay? It's just they've taken you know, the Greek word and tried to bring it into English. His name is Yeshua, and the, these Hebrew words have meaning. You wouldn't believe how many arguments I get in over this whole thing about the name. People love their Jesus, and that's the name you've got to cling to. I mean, it's, it's okay. It's, it's an English name. I don't think his mother ever called him Jesus. They didn't even have J's until the 17th century, so she couldn't have just, you know... To the apostles, you say, Jesus, they go, who's that? You know, they, don't, they don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Yeshua, he will save his people from their sins. That's the reason Christ came, people. He came to save his people. And people often try to say, well, this is only to, to Israelites. Israelites were his people. No, his people, he has a people that weren't of that fold, he tells us. Okay, He has other people besides Israelites. The people of God are those chosen by Him, who manifest their faith in Him through Him. That, that, that's how we know someone is chosen, because they trust in Christ. In the birth of Yeshua, Yahweh invaded human history in the form of a man. Yeshua lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death at Calvary. On that cross, Yeshua took upon Himself our sin. He received the judgment of God that man deserves. And because He was an infinite sufferer, he satisfied fully and completely the righteous demands of God, and God was propitiated. Now, propitiation is the removal 
of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. And the sacrifice of Christ removed the wrath of God from those who are His people. The birth of Yeshua, the incarnation, God becoming a man, that's God's gift of love to us. I just think the birth of Christ is the greatest event in human history, but it has nothing to do with Christmas. So we, we don't, I just am, could get cautious about, let's not mix up the reality of the birth of Christ with all the fables that are connected with Christmas. Just enjoy the holiday for what it is. Pretend it's just a secular holiday and, and enjoy it. No worship in the Christmas tree, though. Remember that, okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that the scriptures, it's amazing how clear they seem to get when we really take the time to dig down and look into them. And Father, there, there's so much tradition, there's so much confusion about the birth of Christ and, and this time of year. I, I don't really believe we'll ever straighten it out, but I just pray that we would understand it. I pray that, first of all, your people wouldn't feel guilty for enjoying a holiday. They'd be able to enjoy it and just thank you for time to be with family and time to be with friends and just enjoying the time. Thank you, Lord, for that opportunity that we have. Help us to realize, Lord, that your birth does not need to be tied with all the confusion that goes on at this time of year. Lord, we thank you for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments. Jeff, you you were did you grow up in that culture about Christmas being a bad thing and you couldn't do anything? I didn't grow up in it. I, I they grew up in it. Oh, they grew up in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it didn't off. come until later in life in the nineties, like eighties, nineties. We started that, down that path. And that was for a reform tradition, yep. basically. <clears throat> yeah, I just you know you make people feel bad for doing something that's you know again if you just separate it from. The birth of Christ, that's just a, you know, were they, did you have a problem with uh, Valentine's Day? Was that evil? No, because we no, it was a secular holiday, right? Yeah, but that's not, a, there's no tie to Christian there. Right, exactly. And so, <laughs> Christmas, that's my point. <laughs> a lot of people say Xmas, like they, when they write it down or right. something, they just put X. But that's right. actually not, that's not yeah. anti-Christian either. Right, that's not anti-Christian because X is yeah. a symbol for Christ, you know, and so it, that's that's not a big deal. But again, if you know that he's got nothing to do with it, then it, that really doesn't even matter. You've talked on this before in the past, but what about the possible connection with December 25th being the day the wise men showed up to? Yeah, there is a connection there. Some scholars would make that connection that December 25th was when the wise men, not at the birth, but later, showed up. You know, and that's that's a real possibility. I don't know that's true, but based you know, on astrology. Like yeah, yeah. I told folks if you're going to have a nativity scene, leave the wise men out of it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The wise men don't <laughs> go there. They didn't like come to the house. Later. Okay, <laughs> you know. Yeah, they came later. He was a little bit older when they showed up. <clears throat> we just, you know, things get so confused, and and you know, like I said, you you try to talk to somebody about this, and you you, it's just you're wasting your time because so many people are just. This is what it is, and you know, and so many Christians, you know, they'll get up on Christmas morning before they open the presents, they'll read Luke too. Okay. Yeah, that's what we used to do. Oh, yeah, that's what we, yeah. And, and then so, they'll say, is it wrong for Christians to celebrate the birth of Christ ever? No, I don't think it's wrong. Okay. But if, it, if you're going to do it. Is it wrong to do it on Christmas Day? Well, there's no connection there. If, you, if, the best, if you're going to celebrate Christ's birth. If they Christ choose birth, to do that. Do it September 11th. If they choose well, to do it on. 
December 25th. Is that wrong? No, I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's a, a sin. It depends on your convictions. If yeah. that's the day that the wise men showed up with the gifts, then <coughs> and they're celebrating his birth, but not that he was So as dead. some young Christian families bringing up their children, if they want to make that a priority for their children on Christmas Day, oh, that's bad. and then still celebrate... <laughs> As long as, know, keep Santa, as long as they keep Santa, as long as they keep Santa, that's my problem. Okay, let's read, let's read the, Luke chapter two, and then okay, look what Santa brought you guys. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's yes, a problem. There are some families like us who never did that. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and Santa gets all the credit. That's what, that was one of my biggest problems. I'm not giving credit so to some some fat man that I had to pay Christian for. Christian families who want their children to know that Christ was born for a reason. And that if they love the Lord, they will celebrate his birth because he came for us and, you know, was born for us. They're free to do that. I just I think it's not wise to connect it with the tradition. It just gets too confusing. Says you. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, my opinion. <laughs> I'd say it boils down to your personal conviction. Right. And just a mutual respect that not everybody has the same understanding of things. Like right. the, the verse that, we, right that you first started off with. I think the point is we shouldn't be condemning other people for what they're doing. Okay? Yeah. Unless they're doing something wrong, like lying to their kids. Maybe so, try to teach them into the Christmas tree. Cultural truth. Gary and Chris and PA says, Well said, Dave. Just enjoy the day. There's a commercial Xmas and the. Believers, Christmas, Yeshua's birth and resurrection is celebrated in my heart every day. I would never want anything less. May Yahweh bless his people. You know, I mean, we all should always be rejoicing. But again, the Bible never tells us to focus on the birth. Never. Never mentions anything about the birth. Focus on his death, but not the birth. And so, uh, is there a reason for that? I don't know. Norm says, David, you all simply do not understand just how large your flock is. That Yahweh has given you. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> okay, it's probably really it's probably a good thing. We in the Brian dysphoria, I love that, Norma. I think you coined that. The Brian dysphoria, hunger and pant for Sunday. Locally, you might have ten or so privileged sheep, but out here you have many, many lambs who need to be fed truth. Be assured that we are indeed with you in spirit. I love the book you wrote before it came out. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You have a book that you didn't even know about, you know. Hey, I just found out I wrote a book. <laughs> I agree with what you have taught about Christmas being a secular holiday and not a holy day. Didn't we sing Christmas carols this morning? I'm just confused. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. We did. And I, believe me, I thought about that too. I said, well, I'm going to teach it. Christmas has nothing to do with Christ, but we're singing Christmas. And, and while we were practicing this morning, we said we're going to do this next year in September. Because I like the hymns. I enjoy the hymns. You know, that's why we sang them. Okay, and there was nothing wrong with the hymns we sang. None of them said anything about a stable or anything like this. Okay, they were just hymns about the birth of Christ. And so, yeah, yes, we're going to do it next year in September. We'll celebrate it on September 11th. You know? <laughs> Believe me, I, I thought about the hypocrisy before I did it, but I was like, ah, I like these hymns. We're going to do it. Okay. <laughs> we're walking a fine line on the page. Yes. When's the sermon against your own book? You're going to argue against your own points? Yeah, now i got something to argue against. You know, I, Curtis said this, he's stupid. Here's what I believe. That's a problem. You know, my views change. The more you study, your views just change. You see something and you're like, you know, hopefully you're growing and learning. That's what 
but the second edition of the book is fourth. Yeah. <laughs> and the third. The fourth. Yeah. <laughs> Scribble out stuff and write new stuff in. Okay, copy this. No, Jack? Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church celebrates Christmas, I think, on the 8th of January. That's what, my, that's what my wife said. We're going to do it on the 8th of January. Are you able to explain how that came to Orthodox? No, I don't know how that came. I think people just pick a date they like and say, let's do it this. It's Maybe they thought December 25th was bad, so they picked a new date. But is, is that 12 days after the 25th? At least pick something that's, you know. Scriptural. Okay, I got a question. Hey, Claire's. Oh, sorry. It's considered old Christmas. I don't know anything about it except old Christmas. Okay. Only old people know about it. Someone writes, Hugo is my name. Are all Israelites Jews? What? No. No, there is no Jew today. There's no Israelite today. The true Israelites are the people of God. The Israel of God are believers. But as far as, you know, go back and look at the message, you know, that we did, uh, I don't know, been two months ago now on Israel. We did five messages on Israel. You need to listen to those because there's just, DNA demonstrates clearly there's no Israelites today. You cannot be anti-Semitic today unless you're talking against the Palestinians. They're the true Semites. Okay, so I don't know where that question came from, but Junior, good morning, Pastor Dave. We just been by our family friends and had it over their Christmas gift from the church. They were thrilled and humbled. Glory to God. Um, Junior in Canada, he requested money for people he knows that are struggling. And uh, so we sent him a check. Thanks, Junior. I'm glad you got that check. I'm surprised you got that that fast in Canada. But that, that is awesome. He said the, he knew some families that were out of work because it's seasonal work they do and they're just struggling. So what a blessing to, to be able to do that. Yeah, someone says, should be celebrating Christ's birthday on September 11th. Exactly. That's when we should do it. And if I ever remember to do that, I mean, September 11th, that's such a, it's a false flag day. I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it's just really weird, you know. Great sermon. It was very interesting. Congratulations on your first book. Merry Christmas. Yes, thank you. TJ, what am I writing next? Christmas. <laughs> yeah, a Christmas book. A Christmas devotion. Bob, Bob, the blue, the blue collar scholar says, "How do we get signed copies of your book?" TJ's going to sign them. <laughs> yeah. I, Jeff, he said he, ta- he, said he talked copy. to you about how people can get books. Yeah, we're going to work it out. <laughs> we don't even know how you can get them yet, so just well, yeah, we got that was just like a sample pressing, so we yeah. got to order stuff. Step one, I wrote it. Now step two, we'll figure out how to get it out. Okay. Hello, I've been enjoying your videos. I have a question not related to Christmas, but your preterist views. If you believe all things already came to pass, do you still look to Yeshua returning after the Great Tribulation? No, the Great Tribulation is over. It was the destruction of Jerusalem was the Tribulation. It happened in that time period. Everything you see, everything talks about the judgment of God coming upon them, the return of Christ, the judgment of God, the resurrection. They're all connected. And they're all connected all through Scripture with time statements. Soon, quickly, shortly, this generation, some of you standing here. It all happened in the first century. All prophecy was fulfilled in AD 70. We have tons of stuff on our website about that subject. So I just encourage you to go to our website. You can find a lot of stuff on that subject. Um, 
I agree with you. I've taught about Christmas being a secular holiday and not a holy day. Didn't we sing Christmas? Okay. Did I already read that? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Yeah, this one's got something after it. it says, yeah, that that's what I was thinking about, seeing them once. Oh, yeah. So they, this someone else wrote the same thing. Thank you. I'm glad you make, you're connecting dots anyway. You know, that... I try to think what questions will come from this, you know, and how did I? And I was thinking about that this morning. I'm thinking, oh, we're seeing Christmas girls. I'm gonna talk to you. Yeah, how's that gonna work? He's doing it because he loves his wife. Yeah. <laughs> I used to. We used to sing Christmas hymns for my mom, but my wife loves it too. So, and again, I don't. If it was wrong, I wouldn't do it. I just think it's not his birthday, but. <clears throat> but could, he was born. But he was born someday. Someone said, yeah, September 11th, excellent idea. I love the hymns, too. My wife agrees with Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're not taking sides here now. So let's see if the women are looking We're not taking sides. Right now. <laughs> this is why women aren't allowed to speak. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy, we're getting in trouble. Good morning, Pastor Dave. It's JP from Oregon. Where can we find your book? You just did... <laughs> Right there. Uh, yeah, it's right here. I, we'll I'll, we'll get information as soon as I find. I, this is the first I heard of it, so as soon as we know what's going on. <laughs> hey, Dave, yeah, Dave, it's the one and only copy. We'll open bidding for five thousand dollars. <laughs> I didn't even know I wrote it. So double the price. I didn't even know I wrote it. So let, let's figure out. We're figuring out how we'll get it out. This is Warren from California. I'm having trouble here. See, so just says we need to celebrate his birth, death, and resurrection, and his full presence. I agree. We need to always be celebrating, you know, the presence of God. That's the greatest thing we have. How do we get a copy of the Feast book? Um, we'll let you know as soon as we figure it out. <laughs> Just send the money now. Uh, this is uh, someone we've been praying for this baby, Dawson. They said, thank you for praying for baby Dawson in Oregon. Much love. Baby's home from the hospital and doing well. So that is, that's a real blessing. Thank you for sharing that. Someone says, try publishing through Amazon. I, again, I don't know anything about this, but when we find something out, we'll let you know. I want to thank the Berean family for giving to these people that were in need. We have good friends that received a gift. We are so grateful. Thank you to the whole Berean family. May we all have a fantastic 2024. Yes, I'm thinking we will, you know, in Christ. Um, <clears throat> all right, I think we're done. You want to... Another Christmas song? No more live stream. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, live stream is going away, so we encourage you to go to Rumble. Again, just sign up for Rumble. It's a simple thing, you know, to get an account on Rumble. Um, I, I would say Rumble's a free speech platform, but they had some problems last week when one of the countries shut them down from their country. We don't want you... And I'm like, this is... Again, censorship is, is a horrible thing, okay? You know, they, you're not allowed speech because... You know, people might learn something.